Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, this is Emma Whitfield, account manager at the Webby Awards. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that the call for entries for the 23rd Annual Webby Awards is open. This year, we've added an entire suite of voice honors, from technical achievement to productivity. And we have new categories across podcasts, games, branded entertainment, social content series and campaigns, and more. We're so excited to honor your work. So head on over to webbyawards.com to get in on early entry pricing before the deadline on Friday, October 26th. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Words can change the world. Make ideas happen. Millennials do good shit. Duh. This is your secret weapon. Smart, current, and slightly cheeky, Merriam-Webster is not your dogmatic English professor's dictionary. And that's a good thing. My next guest, Lisa Schneider, is the chief digital officer and publisher, yes, the actual publisher, of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. She and her team are shaping what it means to define words in the digital age. Their Twitter account caught the internet's eye when it started responding to words surrounding hot cultural conversations and public figures like unprecedented, self-made, and our personal favorite, Kafifi. Merriam-Webster's tweeting is so good that last year it landed them three Webby Awards. Beyond a great social presence, Merriam-Webster is using the internet and an intricate digital data collection system to determine which words should be added to the dictionary, which unsurprisingly is something that a lot of people on the internet have opinions on, as well as how Lisa and her team are creating digital records of what words and topics are occupying American minds right now. As someone who works for a company that defines language, there's one question that Lisa always hears. As chief digital officer and publisher of Mary Webster, I cannot get a word into the dictionary. We have rules, we have really rigorous criteria that we use to enter words into the dictionary. We collect evidence of a word in use, we call those citations. Um, we have now probably about 18,000 citations in our files. I like to say we've been data-driven for about 200 years now, and a word has to have widespread, long-term, meaningful, and organic use. And so when a word meets that criteria, then it's something that we can consider for entry into the dictionary. But it's not our place to decide that a word is good enough or a word should or shouldn't mean something. We get, you know, change.org petitions all the time, and this word should be in the dictionary or this word should be defined differently. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, people are dreadful, but we can't change that by changing the meaning of a word, you know, on our own. You right. know, people have to change language, and we follow. We're like reporters yeah. reporting on language. I mean, even, but even some of those criteria that you said, there's some qualitativeness to it, or maybe you guys have standards for it. Like, for instance, you said, um, I think you said like long-term use. Mm -hmm. What is long, like how do you define long-term? Is that something that changes over time? 
It doesn't change over time, but it changes in the sense that we're looking for words that are established members of the language, not that are trendy and so maybe will be used for a season and then disappear. And so sometimes that can take a long time for that to happen because a word isn't used very frequently. There's not a lot of evidence of it and it can take many years for it to sort of cum up. Um, and sometimes it can happen very quickly. An example of something that happened very quickly um, is from a long time ago, but the word AIDS. So when the AIDS crisis came to be, it was very clear that this was a word that was unfortunately not going away. And so that's a word that made it into the dictionary very, very quickly. Interesting. So, I mean, I, when we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I was noticing you have a feature on your site called Words to Watch, um, which I think is essentially like not necessarily words that are in the dictionary or necessarily going to be, but just that you and your team and everybody at Merriam-Webster finds interesting and is paying attention to. Is that fair? Yes, that's exactly correct. So words we're watching is exactly that. Um, we don't wake up one morning and say, hey, I, I just saw this word and I looked up and there was a ton of evidence for it, so let's enter it. It is something that we're tracking over time and paying attention to. And what the words we're watching feature does is it enables us to share a little bit of that behind the scenes insight, let people know that we're looking and talking about those words, um, share a little bit about what it is that we're seeing, and then, you know, sometimes we've already had to go back and update some of those posts saying, hey, and now this was entered into the dictionary. Interesting. And so uh, one of the ones I noticed that you were profiling just recently was ratioed, which, you know, we're here at the mm -hmm. Webby Awards. We're interested in these internet-y kind of words, yep. um, which is essentially a reference to uh, tw Twitter interactivity and how many comments versus how many retweets someone is getting on a tweet. Is that something that you sort of look at and say, well, this is getting a lot of use and it's interesting, but who knows, maybe Twitter will redesign their interface in three months and nobody will use this word anymore? Is that, do you sort of think about uh, how, why it's being used as a, as a, as part of the thought process about like whether it might be used over the, like, say, the long term? Yes, of course. This is part art and part science, like many things. And there's no way to become a lexicographer other than becoming a lexicographer. So there's no course in school that you can go to and graduate and say, I have a degree and now I'm a lexicographer. You know, you have to go to work at a dictionary and work and a lexicographer with lexicographer. Is... A lexicographer is um, someone who makes dictionaries, right? Somebody who writes the definitions for words for dictionaries. Um, we refer to the dictionary as a lexicon. Most of the people working at Merriam-Webster have worked there for a very long time and train the newer people that come in. So we have this really depth of institutional knowledge. And there's a German word that is actually now an English word in the sense that it's entered into the dictionary. It's Sprachgefühl, which means a sense for language. Huh. And so you have to have a sense for language. And we have this criteria, but you also have to have that feel for language and for how language develops in order to be able to make a call and say, hey, this is being used a lot, and I think it's going to stick around, or this is going to be used a lot, and I need to see it stick around, or this is used a lot, and you right. know, tomorrow it'll be gone. I'm interpreting what you're saying as... Merriam-Webster is really trying to find out what's happening and reflect what's happening. And you have criteria for how it actually gets to finally be in the dictionary, but you're not trying to say, we've decided this will never be a word because you don't like it. You're trying to reflect what's out there. Are there other dictionaries? And I'm not asking you to like throw shade on them or anything, but is that a unique stance in the way of making dictionaries or is that a pretty common practice these days? I don't think it's entirely unique, but there certainly historically has been some disagreement over how descriptive a dictionary ought to be mm. and whether a dictionary ought to recognize words that might be considered slang or uh, non-standard. And 
sometimes we enter words and, and we label them as non-standard. So ain't is in the dictionary. Huh. Uh, irregardless is in the dictionary. You know, this is a word that actually trended a couple of years ago when the Cubs won the World Series. And the on-air announcer used the word irregardless. And everybody took to Twitter and went to the dictionary to look it up saying, oh, I can't believe this guy. He's so ignorant. This word doesn't exist. And in fact, the word exists. Now, it's marked non-standard, so we don't recommend you use it in formal speech or writing. But it's a word. Right. And so that stance that you're describing is called descriptivism. Okay. You know, we consider ourselves a descriptive dictionary. We're describing how language is actually used. And there are certainly some, you know, dictionaries or other word people that think we should be a little bit more prescriptivist or prescribing how right. words should be used. And so, you know, there was another dictionary with a usage panel and a group of people sitting around saying, this should not be, mm. you know, this is against the rules. Mm -hmm. And that's not the stand that we take. Where do you get citations now. So traditionally, that activity was called reading and marking. And editors, lexicographers, would sit with books and magazines, and they would highlight words that were used in ways that seemed new or unusual. And we would then enter these into, a, you know, we had typists that sat and typed them and enter these into our database. And we would use these citations. And now, you know, we can just go online. And so that has certainly um, sped up the process a lot, and also I think given us access to a lot more than we had access to in the past. So if you were following sports, you would read Sports Illustrated and see what was in there. And now there's sort of a blog for every kind of arcane corner of sports, and we can find all of these things, you know, much more quickly and much more easily. Nowadays on the internet, do the sources that can contribute a citation have to be somehow validated or uh, official? I don't know what the right word is, but like a random person's blog that's popular, uh, that's not necessarily a company or so forth, can like a citation come from there yes. or is it only from organizations? It can come from there. Loosely, the, the criteria has generally been sort of edited text, but there is some assumption that if somebody's publishing something, that it's edited. Got it. Um, and for those playing along at home, I'm using annoying finger air quotes to say that people sort of dump their hot takes very quickly. Hot take is entered into the dictionary. Because again, this is not about did one certain segment, you know, did only, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post approve the use of this word. Right. People own language. And, you know, language is, is there to communicate. It's a form of communication. And so words mean what people agree that they mean. And back to the descriptivism, it's not our place to say, you know, this is good enough. We're looking at how people are using language. And, and because of that criteria, right, it doesn't matter, you know, here's this one person's blog, and, you know, it's essentially their diary. But that as a standalone wouldn't do it. It's about the accumulation of sure. the evidence in aggregate. Right. So if enough people are using it, and they're using it without what we call a gloss, meaning they're not putting a little explanatory note, um, then it's assumed that people understand what that means. And so mm. if you're seeing it everywhere, then it's a word that the average adult is likely to encounter and we're responsible to enter it. it I mean, it strikes me, though, that a, a really big change with starting to be able to use uh, citations from the internet is that there's just a lot more people who are able now to contribute on some level, maybe not individually, but as a group to what's in the dictionary, right? Because before... It would have just been publications, and a lot of those publications maybe, I don't know what the percentage is, but maybe many of them adhere to a certain style, Strunk and White or AP style or so forth. 
Um, and as more and more people now can publish their own work, some of them choose to do that, some of them don't. The, it seems like the canon of what you're pulling from is bigger. Is that is that fair to say? It is, but I think, you know, it, the only constant in language is change. And so in every generation, right, there have always been teenagers. There have always been new words. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I tell a story from time to time where I was once – trying to answer an email on my iPad. And I really don't like the iPad as a productivity advice and I rarely device and I rarely use it that way. And I was trying to type yes, you know, yes, with a lot of S's and exclamation points. I wanted to convey my enthusiasm. And I kept typing quickly and sort of missing the chance to correct and the autocorrect is very aggressive. And so then I went into Slack to sort of complain and vent and I said, you know, I guess autocorrect doesn't want me to sound like a teenage girl. And one of our editors, Emily Brewster, immediately wrote back, autocorrect has no idea of the power of teenage girls to change language. <laughs> right? And so that's, you know, that's awesome in so many ways. And and so I love that story. But there have always been teenagers that right. used new language that the generation above them said, oh, my God, we're going to hell in a handbasket. And then, you know, they became adults and you, and continued to use that language. That language became an established part of the language. Um, we've got an article that we put up every year on Grammar Day, and it, it includes things that were once considered sort of just dreadful, dreadful language use, like won't, right? Just the contraction won't for will not was mm -hmm. once considered awful. And obviously that's I, I missed, changed. I missed that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that was in the early 1900s. Okay. I think we all missed okay. it. All right. Thank God. <laughs> well, one last question about the criteria stuff, and then we'll move on and talk um, a bit about the social yeah. presence, which is really interesting from your officer. But um, what English language, and you've answered some of this, but like what English language are you ultimately trying to catalog? Is it every, spoken in the United States? Is it English language everywhere it's spoken? Well, first of all, it's not spoken, it's written. written. The only way we can find evidence is written. And that's one of the things that people sometimes confuse. We have something on our definition pages about first known use. And first known use is the date that we know of so far that we have the first written evidence of use. Usually words are spoken before they're written. And so something came up earlier to, you know, when we were chatting here about hangry, you know, I've been using that word for a long time, but it didn't make its way into written text until maybe later than we were all using it in sure. casual conversation. Um, but Merriam-Webster is recording American English. Um, I think most people probably don't think of dictionaries as having a lot of personality, at least, you know, prior to Merriam-Webster's social account, I would say. I would say the account's sometimes pretty provocative. Tell me about the voice and presence you created on Twitter and um, how did you all come up with that? And how did you go from a dictionary, which I think ultimately people would say is succinct, to this voice on Twitter that really has a lot of personality and is, you know, I, I don't think sassy is the right word. I know people have called it that, but um, how did you get there? Yeah, people have called it that. Um, I, you know, I think the story that I just told about Emily's answer is, is how we got there. So I came to Merriam-Webster about four years ago, and, you know, I've been sort of a word nerd my whole life. I was a bookworm child. I was an English major. I was the copy editor of my high school newspaper. And so I was really excited when the opportunity came across my desk to, to work at Merriam-Webster. And I came to the organization and just was having so much fun every day listening to the people around me geek out about language. And Emily's answer is pretty typical of how people are talking 
about language. Earlier today, uh, we were having a conversation about GOAT, which was also recently added to the dictionary. And Merriam-Webster is based in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is not too far from Boston. And so Tom Brady came up and asking, you know, if that was sort of the reason that the word was used enough to merit entry in the dictionary. And so there's clarify a whole what GOAT is for people who haven't. Greatest uh, of all time. Um, and it did start as a sports reference. Mm-hmm. And so there was a whole conversation about whether it was Brady. And then we were looking up numbers of citations and Serena Williams and Michael Jordan. And then somebody said, well, you know, our first known use is 1996 when Tom Brady was in college and he had no goatness. That was our conversation. Uh-huh. You know, if somebody grabbed that and then put it out there as a tweet, you know, you would think that was sort of really smart and funny. It's just a reflection of the conversations that we're having in the office. And, and that was that was it. You know, I went to my boss at the time and I said, here's our social media. It's really, frankly, very staid and very boring. What were you doing before? What were you doing before? I assume it was like word of the day. And yeah, in the morning it was word. No, not even. In the morning it was word of the day. In the afternoon it was a call to action to play a word game, vocabulary quiz. And, you know, maybe once a week we did a trend watch um, that was something that had trended in the past week. It wasn't real time at all. And so the really sort of two big platforms that I advocated for were, one, we should really pull back the curtain and show people who we really are. We're having these great, funny, geeky conversations about language in the office. We have a great time. It's really interesting. We're not showing any of that to the world. So that was number one. And the other thing was we have this incredible window onto what is occupying people's minds by looking at the lookups. The top lookups sort of change very little over time. Interesting. There, huh. Yeah, you know, because you're talking about a huge mass, and so it takes a lot to move that needle. So it's like middling hard words, like SAT words, you know, s- something that you would encounter, but maybe it's a little bit nuanced. And so, you know, ubiquitous, nefarious, and serendipity, those types of words, Got it. you know, are in the top word list. And what we would see is from time to time, a word will just suddenly appear there. So it's not like it even climbed up the chart. Just out of the blue, it's there. So what that means is in that moment, Everybody, a lot of people, came to the dictionary to look up a word that is not normally looked up. So clearly something happened on the public stage where that word was used. It caught people's attention. It drove their curiosity, and it sent them to the dictionary. And I thought that was so interesting and that we were reporting on it, you know, a week later was not as interesting as the idea of possibly turning this into a real-time reporting feature, right? right? And so – it's an insight into what are people thinking right now. Um, if you looked it up, you know you're not alone. And if you didn't look it up, it's really interesting to see that people went to do this. And so I think you know that combination was what kind of sent us online in a totally different way. What's so fun about it is a similar thing that people get excited about with like sort of Google Words and Google Trend mm-hmm. Search, which is you know there's these things that are really huge sometimes that you maybe didn't even know about because you weren't sort of clued into the the event that happened that made it popular. Um, and it gives you sort of a window into like what's going on in culture, essentially, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, what other tools do you use to inform what you're talking about on social media with as it relates to words? We we don't really use any other tools. So I think our our social media voice, you know, it is sort of our natural voice. I think that's it works because it's not a marketing construct. You know, it's organic and it's who we really are. And so we we do talk about TrendWatch, and that's an internal tool that we have that you know, is tracking the lookups on our own site. Um, but otherwise, we, you know, we talk about the same, you know, we talk about goat and we talk about sandwiches. Um, one day we were talking about the definition of a sandwich and I 
don't know how it came up or why. It's a controversial topic here at the YB Awards as well. It's a really, you know, yeah. so... It's uh, the hot dog, not hot dog people. It's yes, crazy, right? that's yeah. exactly what happened. We tweeted that the hot dog was a sandwich, right. and people apparently have very <laughs> deeply held convictions about whether or not the hot dog is a sandwich, um, and that kind of went nuts, uh, which surprised us. And so, again, it's it's our own sort of musings. It's, um, you know, we, we, we have a mission statement in two parts. And our mission statement is to propagate our irrational love of the English language and to help people understand language better so they can better understand and communicate with the world around them. So sometimes it's just that sort of weird stuff about language that's fun and sort of enjoyable. And sometimes it's when do you use affect versus effect because people need to know that. And so we're helping people use language better. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Right. So some of what happens by using Trendwatch as an informer of what you might be talking about on Mm -hmm. Twitter, some of what happens is you have things like Donald Trump saying something as, was it unprecedented? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then you're at the same time tweeting the correct definition. Right. And so, you know, some people might consider that like lightly or significantly trolling the president. Right. And, you know, some people I would say probably say that the Merriam-Webster social account is, or Twitter account is partisan, you know, whether or not it is or isn't, or whether you believe that or not. What, I mean, what do you, what is that like to have people say that or to, to perceive a dictionary's Twitter account as being partisan? It's something that we've talked about and made a decision that what we're doing is really objective. We're talking, you know, we stick to the words. And so the, the dictionary is a reference. It's not a judge or a scold. And so our position is that you know, we can talk about language use without that being, you know, personal and without that being judgmental. And certainly when we're talking about trending lookups, we're reporting on data. Yeah. And most people who look carefully can see what we're doing. And if asked, we're happy to explain what we're doing. Um, it's important to us actually to be objective and, and to remain objective because the dictionary needs to be a trusted reference for everybody. And that's another reason that we have this strict criteria, right? I'm not, when we're writing definitions, we're not affected by what we think ought to be. We're really following the data. And it's the same thing with Trendwatch. We're reporting on data. People went to the dictionary to look that up. We think that's really interesting. Do you, I mean, do you worry that you're, I mean, as the people who, and I'm going to overstate this for effect Mm -hmm. or affect, uh, you know, you decide what's in the dictionary. You could, you know, somebody might say 
talk about elites, right? I mean, that's a pretty elite position, whether or not you are elites or not. Do you worry that it, you're fa- that you fall into this perception of like elitist New Yorkers or Bostoners or Northeasterners, you know, just you know, making fun of of the president as they always do, kind of thing? I haven't heard that. And again, I think because we're reporters and we have criteria, we're not deciding. We're yeah. not deciding in an objective way. And I think the idea that we are using citations and data and reporting on how the language is actually used um, is a really important reason that people trust us as an academic Mm. source. Um, So we'll get, for example, emails from teachers saying, how do I access Merriam-Webster? You know, they have a firewall, this or that, Um, but we need an academic resource for the classroom. And so I think people understand that this is something that has objectivity, that has rigor, that is reporting, and is not about people sitting around deciding, yeah. hmm, is this word good enough? You right, know, if it, right. if it was, I could get a word into the dictionary, but I can't. <laughs> um, how exciting is it for the lexico- lexicographers to have the trend-watching feature? That must have just been, I wish I was there the day that the people who did that job got to start seeing that tool. That just seems like the most exciting piece of information they could ever get, No. Yeah, it it is really exciting and it's really gratifying to us because when we talk about being data-driven for almost 200 years, this is the data that we use to make the dictionary. But, you know, for many years, the product that we put out was in print. And so you put that out, people buy it. You have no idea how they're using it or what words they're looking at. Right. I mean, it's just... It's just like all of a sudden the blindfold is taken. I mean, I'd imagine, right? That just yeah. must have been such a revelation. And and it was seen immediately. You know, I've been at Merriam-Webster for four years, but obviously kind of have the received wisdom sure. um, of of the people that have been there for longer. And we put the dictionary online in 1996. And shortly after that, Princess Diana died. And they immediately saw spikes in particular lookups, including princess, actually, which is really interesting, and paparazzi and cortege. So the words that were used, you know, around this story that everybody was following spiked at the dictionary. And it is so exciting for us because, first of all, you know, it reinforces this idea that word matters. It reinforces this idea that that the dictionary is an important reference for people. When the question of meaning is raised, people turn to the dictionary, and that is why we exist. And so we're really gratified to, to see that in action. Yeah. And I mean, also just now that uh, everybody can look up everything all the time, right, which must be, I mean, the usage, I guess we'll never really know how many times people went to and pulled the dictionary out of the shelf exactly. before before the exactly. internet, but at least now we do know, right? <laughs> we do. Yeah. Um, how is like this improved social experience, a Twitter account. I mean, you have a lot of followers. It's really um, gotten a lot of praise from us at the Webbies and elsewhere. How has it like helped overall the Merriam-Webster brand or company? I mean, do you sell more dictionaries now? We do. Here's something interesting. Who uses a dictionary? People. Lots of people use a dictionary. Look, you know, I'm never a believer in, oh, this thing is, you know, in imminent disappearance. Yeah. Um, people use different things in different ways. And, and who knows what will happen, right, over a longer period of time. But I still read books. And depending on where you are and what you're doing, you know, some people do like to have a dictionary on a desk. And so what we saw is that our print dictionary sales were sort of declining for some period of time, which is not at all surprising. And we expected it. And it was part of our plan. Sure. But we thought that would continue. And it's flattened out. Hmm. Um, and so our print sales are still quite robust. Print is a profitable business line for us. So people are buying, you know, print dictionaries. And I think what the social media presence has done was 
raise the awareness of Merriam-Webster and raise the awareness of um, a, a definition as something more than a commodity. You know, I would say that's a thing that we really struggle against, this idea that a definition is a commodity. Whatever result Google serves you is good enough. We've got the only um, sort of full team of lexicographers in North America that are working on updating and maintaining a dictionary. And so the quality of what we provide, the research behind what we provide is a product that is not equivalent to, you know, any other product that's out there. And I think our social media presence has helped people to understand that, um, to kind of gravitate towards us as a brand name. So certainly we'll get, you know, emails or tweets saying, oh, you know, I love your social media. I'm going to buy a print dictionary and and download your app. We're like, yes, do that. Um, That's a really good idea. But also what it means is that, let's say, we turn up in a list of search results, you know, Search is very competitive. We're a big brand name. Often we're number one, but not always. So if you follow Merriam-Webster and you know the Merriam-Webster name, you might be more inclined to pick us in a list of search results even when we're not number one. Um, you know, we also have a lot of journalists who follow us on social media, and so our organic press coverage has increased 7,000%. Wow. So if you think about sort of the value of mm-hmm. all of that press coverage, branding, inbound links, I mean, this has created quite a nice ecosystem that does really help our business. Yeah. And so you talked about how do you think about uh, less wordy social platforms but more visual ones like Instagram or Snapchat? Are we going to start seeing roundtable discussions via video of, of your, yeah, with your team of, right. of words or like how, how do, cause it's not quite the same or how do you think about that? And I know you guys have a presence in those places, but do you just sort of try and bring the same philosophy to those or do you have to work really differently because it's so much more visual? Yeah. You have to work a little bit differently. Um, I think, you know, what you see even on Twitter, which, you know, has some constraint that again, you know, our mission is either to share a rational love of the English language, which means, you know, if we can find a little video clip or a GIF or an illustration or something that we pair with a word of the day that makes you laugh, right, that is right in our wheelhouse. You know, we enjoy language and we have fun with it. And so pairing that up really fits in with that mission and also fits in with the second part, which is if you do have limited space, maybe there's a way that you can illustrate a nuanced meaning of a word with an image or a video or something like that in a way that gives people people that sort of like flash of lightning moment, Mm. like, oh, I get it. So we're really happy to do that. We don't think there's really a dichotomy. It's like anything else. This is our mission statement. How do we do that? And how we do that might iterate differently on different platforms. And so, of course, we have to think differently for the use case of the platform, the mindset of the user, the demographic of the user, you know, all of those things. But it really comes back to either, you know, thrilling somebody with kind of geekiness or helping them understand language better. Well, speaking of thrilling people, hopefully we'll thrill our audience or listeners today with some geekiness. Um, I've saved it for the end. There's over 840 new words uh, that have just been added. Many of them are very internet-ish, you would call. I talked about ratio earlier. There was TLDR. What are some of your favorites that have been added recently? Oh, God. Um, See, we don't do that. It's like asking about your children. I understand. Um, Um, But I think... You know, I can give you sort of a representative sampling. There so okay. there are definitely things that are internet like, you know, GOAT or TLDR, um, too long, didn't read. And so those are sort of internet There are often sort of not internet but technology 
words. So we've got, you know, biohacking and cybercrime and fintech uh, financial technology um, were added to the dictionary. You know, there are words that get added out of the sort of language of the cultural moment. So allyship, right? The state of being an ally. Oh, interesting. Yeah, was added. Um, we always get a lot of words from food. And Why so, do you think that is? Um, I think because... You know, food is another area that is changing, right? You know, chefs, recipe bloggers, whatever, are looking for new ways to um, interest people. And also because we get a lot of food words from other countries. Uh So when a word becomes used by native speakers of English as part of the language without a gloss over time, words that started off as foreign words can be adopted into English. And so, you know, you have zoodles was entered, right? So that's the zucchini noodles. And so that was entered. This is a new thing that people are doing. And wagyu, uh, which is the Japanese beef, mm-hmm. right? So that came from Japan. So that, that so was added. So really like in areas where there's just more innovation or more change. So in food, there's a lot of innovation exactly. from the chefs themselves and also because of cultural and immigration and stuff, you see more words being added. Exactly. Do you feel a need or does Merriam-Webster feel a need to try and reach out to all the different types of people in the United States? I guess what I'm saying is Twitter is like a big place, but it's also sort of a specific place, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's probably not the most mainstream. I mean, it's a lot of people, but it's it's sort of its own thing in a way. Um, Is there, do you feel like the need to try and reach uh, communities that might not use Twitter with all the information um, that you have? Like, because the Twitter thing is, it's really proactive. You guys aren't just like putting it there. You're going onto some platform and you're really doing a lot of work to try and make sure people and sharing, make sure people find out about it. Um, is that something you try and do in other places too? We do it. You know, when you talk about being proactive, I think there's there's different ways of being proactive. You know, certainly... Um, the the existence of the dictionary in our position in search means that when people are, you know, either in a bookstore looking for yeah. a dictionary, right, it's very recognizable. It's, mm-hmm. you know, the red cover and the bullseye logo. Um, online, we turn up a lot in search. So I think there's, you know, two answers to your question is one, um, you know, we certainly put out this information. Sure, we talk about it on Twitter, but, you know, it's also old school. We're putting out press releases. We're contacting journalists. You know, this can get picked up by the AP and be in every kind of small newspaper yep. um, in, in all kinds of towns. And it, you don't need to be, you know, a reader of Merriam-Webster or a user of Twitter in order to see it. Um, certainly on the other side, absolutely, in terms of looking at language use, we make a very concerted effort to look at a large cross-section of sources. Mm, interesting. So you you're looking at publications from all different walks of life, uh, different interests, different niches. Exactly, different geographies, everything. Right. So what are the, what's the, some of the most press-worthy, what are the ones that people, you got the most amount of emails, people being mad at you about for the new, um, words, that, new words that came out? Yeah, I, I actually think we have not gotten any pushback wow. um, so far. Things that I think people would be upset about, um, when we see contractions, um, sort of new contractions, like I was describing won't was considered quite horrible. So we just entered sorta, S-O-R-T-A, into the dictionary. And I I can see people being really upset about that. Uh, The first known use, by the way, is 1901. So this is something that took a while uh, to be used frequently enough in, again, sort of edited text that we said, well, people use it. People use it in writing. It's clearly understood. And so you know, it's now entered into the dictionary. Right. Well, let me uh, wrap up with some uh, one question that's sort of about 
a little bit about the future. Um, and I'm sure you're thinking about this because you guys are do great digital stuff. Uh, you know, voice is becoming a big mm-hmm. thing in the world. And it just strikes me that uh, your work in this field is either or both uh, terribly interesting and optimistic, but also more challenging than many because of a lot of words are pronounced the same and mean different things. Um, how are you thinking about just overall voice and the dictionary, um, like sort of in the near term and in the long term? Yeah. Well, you're right. It's something that we're thinking about. And you're also right that it's challenging because of homophones. So if you, you know, go to a voice activated assistant and you say, what is the definition of bear, right? How do I know if you mean B-E-A-R, the animal, or B-E-A-R as in to bear a burden, or B-A-R-E as in to be unadorned. And so that's a really challenging thing. I think as these devices get more sophisticated, there can be ways to create interactivity to narrow down the meaning. There are already some tools that are out there that can help you identify in the reverse. So if, you're, if you've got a sentence right? There are some tools out there that can parse the part of speech of the word and narrow down the result Hmm. that is given based on that. So that use case is partially solved. It's not perfect. Um, And, you know, we use that algorithm in some of the features that you see on our site with dynamically generated example sentences. Um, And most of the time it works and sometimes it doesn't work. Um, And so we're constantly kind of getting feedback and then tweaking the algorithm based on the feedback that we have. And what about the pronunciation element, though? So I know in a dictionary in Merriam-Webster's, there's there's a there's the special. You'll have to tell me what those are we, called. We call it the audio pron for audio pronunciation. Yeah, which is and so how if you're if all the citations are written, how do you then eventually how do you verify what the or determine the pronunciation if it's all written citations and then go ahead. Right. So we have a pronunciations editor uh-huh. actually, and that is his specialty. And um, I, I don't want to speak too much to his work because not my area of expertise, sure. but um, we have that. And I think, you know, that's an interesting thing with voice, right? It's, you know, if I'm not sure how to pronounce a word, am I, how am I going to ask a voice assistant because I can't pronounce it? You know, I'm yeah. going to spell it and ask for the pronunciation. Um, do I have to ask for the pronunciation because if I spell it, it'll just repeat the word back to me? So when we talked earlier about, hey, think about the different use cases on different platforms, right? This might not be such a big question or problem on voice. This might be something that sort of is already solved by voice. And so we don't have to resolve that problem. But I think the issue of, you know, providing definitions and figuring out context and personalization and providing the right homograph, um, that is something that's really interesting to look at and figure out. Um, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. It's been great talking to you. And uh, best of luck with uh, Merriam-Webster in the future. We'll be watching. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Thank you to Lisa for stopping by. Be sure to visit the Merriam-Webster site to check out the word lookup and other cool features talked about in the episode. And follow Merriam-Webster, M-E-R-R-I-A-M-W-E-B-S-T-E-R to keep up with their witty account. If you like this episode, consider leaving us a review in iTunes. It helps us get the podcast in front of more people like you. And you can follow me on Twitter at DMDLikes. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies. Our producer is Sebastian Aday. Editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Research and writing by Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is like napping when your kids are napping. And this is the Webby Podcast. See you next week.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.